Are we living in the last days? If so, then is there any way for us to determine how close we are to the blessed event, better known as the rapture of the church? With these questions in mind, you might be interested to know that there is a ministry called Rapture Ready. And Rapture Ready has an intriguing rapture index, which they use to combine a list of end time components, which they calculate into what they call a cohesive indicator. And while they insist that this rapture index, it's not, it's not meant to predict the day of the rapture because that would just be silly. It is designed though to measure the type of activity that could act as a precursor to the rapture of the church. Now, just to be clear about this, it'll help you to know that this rapture index, it actually includes 45 different indicators, which include spiritual categories like apostasy in the church, Satanism in the world, as well as activities of the occult. It factors in these things. And not only that, but the rapture index also factors in political issues like the economy and inflation and global turmoil. The rapture index also includes weather-based activity like earthquakes, droughts, and volcanoes. And as we factor together all 45 indicators that we find in this rapture index, Well, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the current calculation of all these indicators, it equals 188 out of 200. Yeah, 188 out of 200. And you're like, what does that even mean? Well, to put it simply, all indications lead us to realize that we are rapidly approaching the day of the rapture. Now, in order to understand the basis for why this ministry, Rapture Ready, chose these 45 specific indicators listed in this index, well, we only need to look as far as the sermon that Jesus preaches before his crucifixion. And as we begin to study this sermon that I'm referring to, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the last days, according to Jesus, will be a time of increasing doctrinal deception. Secondly, we'll learn that the last days will be a time of increasing global commotion. Thirdly, and finally, we'll learn that the last days will be a time of increasing spiritual persecution. Well, with this as the outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting a sermon which is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. And as you make your way to the 21st chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Olivet Discourse was so named because our Messiah actually presented this message on the Mount of Olives. In order to put this location into a proper perspective, well, it'll help you to know that the Mount of Olives is a limestone ridge which is just east of the temple. That being the case, Christ Jesus was actually presenting this end times message against the backdrop of the temple. From the Mount of Olives, you could look across the Kidron Valley and see the temple right there on the other side. And so with this locational context in mind, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 21. I want to begin reading there at verse 5, because here Luke tells us that some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. And that's when Jesus said, these things which you see, speaking of the temple, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him saying, teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. Now here in these verses we find Christ Jesus. He's presenting the people with this prophecy by describing the day when the stones of the temple will be cast down into the Kidron Valley. And while I have no doubt that there were some who were quick to dismiss this prophetic promise, we also learned that there were also those who wanted to know when this prophecy would have uh, come to pass. And according to Luke, you know, they not only wanted to know when this prophecy would be fulfilled, but they also wanted to know if there would be any kind of sign uh, which would then help them to know when these things were about to take place. Uh, They wanted some indicators to know when is the temple going to be destroyed. Uh, In the Apostle Matthew's account, 
Matthew informs us that the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, the disciples of Christ, after hearing the prophecy about the destruction of the temple, they waited for the skeptics and they waited for the scoffers to depart. And then when they were finally alone with the Lord there on the Mount of Olives, the apostles then approached Jesus privately. And they asked him about the timeline when this prophecy would then be fulfilled. While it's true that the Lord was led to withhold this information from them, it's also true that this prophecy about the temple was actually fulfilled 37 years later. 37 years later, within 40 years, this prophecy ended up being fulfilled. As a matter of fact, it was 70 AD when Roman soldiers, under the leadership of General Titus, they invaded the city of Jerusalem, and you know many Jews decided to make their final stand there in the temple of God. In response, the Romans set fire to the temple. And as the fire engulfed the temple structures there, the, the gold and the silver and the other precious metals which were stored in the temple treasury, well, that, that all ended up melting and dripping into the cracks and the crevices of the temple stones. And it's for this reason that the Roman soldiers decided to pry apart all of the stones in order to recover all of this treasure. Now, with all that in mind, we can see then that the first part of this prophecy was actually fulfilled in 70 A.D. And the reason I say this is because it was 70 A.D. when the temple stones were cast down just as Jesus promised 37 years earlier. At the same time, it's also important for us to realize that, that there's much more to this prophecy uh, that we find uh, w- throughout the Olivet Discourse. There are many more prophecies that Jesus presented, not just the destruction of the temple. As a matter of fact, as we continue to make our way through the Olivet Discourse, we'll begin to see that the sermon from our Savior here actually includes a long list of prophecies that cover the period of time from the, the, from the beginning of the church age all the way until the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's, there's several prophecies that help us to, to basically get, a, get a, a, a brief snapshot of what the world's going to be like from the beginning of the church age until his return. That being the case, I should take a moment to point out that the Lord Jesus presented the prophecy about the destruction of the temple in order to provide the people with a way to test the truthfulness of the rest of the prophecies that would follow. Think about it. If the prophecy about the destruction of the temple failed to be fulfilled, then Jesus would have been consigned to the category of false prophet, and then there would be no reason for us to even believe the rest of the message. If the temple failed to be destroyed, then there's no reason to believe that Jesus could be correct about the rest of it. Conversely, the fulfillment of this prophecy would then provide confirmation for the rest of the message. And seeing how the temple was in fact destroyed in 70 AD, you know, 37 years after Jesus presented the prophecy, well, then it only stands to reason that the rest of the prophecies will probably also come to pass. That being the case, I want to back up and take a closer look at the warning that Jesus presents here in Luke chapter 21. With that, I'd like to begin again reading at verse 6. Here Jesus declares these things which you see, speaking of the temple there, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another, shall not be thrown down. So they asked him saying, teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said to them, there will be teachers on YouTube that will help you to calculate all of this. No, no, that's not, that's, that's not what he said. He said, take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time has drawn near. Therefore, Do not go after them. Now, listen, rather than providing his disciples with a date when the temple would be destroyed, Jesus instead presented them with another prophecy. And this prophecy was about the false teachers who would begin to lead people astray after his departure. And knowing that many would easily be led astray, Jesus encouraged his audience to take heed. Or in other words, he's telling them to be on guard against these doctrinal deceivers who will come along and lead people astray. And yeah, even in the name of Jesus Christ. There would be those who would come along and in the name of Jesus introduce heresy. And listen, this prophetic warning not only applied to the believers there in the first century, but the warning still applies to us now 
And I would even argue more than ever before. That being the case, we should consider Matthew's account of the same warning, which is found in Matthew chapter 24. It's there where Jesus declares, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, here in Matthew's account, we find the Lord Jesus helping his disciples to realize that uh, there's going to be these false teachers who would come along and, and start introducing heresy to the church, and, and they, would be, they would be very convincing, and the reason why is because they would be able to produce signs and wonders. These false teachers would be so convincing with their signs and their wonders, and, and to the point where they would be able to deceive those who have embraced the election of the Lord. And knowing that even the elect could be deceived by these false teachers, it's for this reason that the Lord assures his disciples that the time of his return is going to be so incredibly unmistakable that it'll be like a lightning storm that flashes across the sky. Those who want to come along and say that Christ has already come back or we missed the, the, the second coming or, or these sorts of things, listen, the second coming of Christ will be like a lightning storm in a dark sky. It'll be unmistakable. We should also consider Mark's account of the same passage where Jesus declares, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. From this, we can see that the Lord Jesus here is presenting this prophecy about the rise of these false teachers who will occupy the church age. And, and you know, listen, we might realize here uh, you know, that, uh, that these false teachers will be able to produce some sort of supernatural sign or miraculous wonder. And yet, despite this fact, these are not good measurements for whether a teacher is, uh, is from the Lord or not. Supernatural signs and miraculous wonders are not a good measure for testing the truthfulness of a teacher. Jesus tells us that there will be false teachers who will rise up and, and, and present supernatural signs and miraculous wonders in order to lead us astray with doctrinal deceptions. And you better believe that the fallen angels that we refer, refer to as demons, they have no problem using their parlor tricks in order to confirm the credentials of false teachers who are actually proclaiming doctrines of demons. This was the point that Paul was making in 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's verse 1 where he declares, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, when? Latter times. In latter times, some will depart from the faith. Why? Because they'll give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Deceiving spirits who come along with deceptive signs and wonders in order to present these doctrines of demons. That's what's going to happen in the last days. The church will fall into a state of apostasy as believers begin to backslide giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And the chances are many of these backsliding believers will be misled by the supernatural signs and the miraculous wonders that appear to be proof that this teacher can conjure the power of God when in fact they're just being empowered by demons. That being the case, we should, we should take a moment to ask the question, well, how, how can we know you know, if somebody is doing these miraculous signs and wonders, you know, how, how can we know whether they're a teacher sent from God or not? If miracles aren't a way to, to test the truthfulness of a teacher, how should we test them? With this question in mind, well, we would, we would do well to ignore the smoke in the mirrors. We would do well to ignore the pseudo healings that happen at, you know, different, you know, revivals where, Someone who walked into a, a revival scenario was placed into a wheelchair, wheeled up on stage, and then some spiritual charlatan waved a magic wand over them, and all of a sudden they stand up and walk away. 
Now, we, we do well to, to ignore that for a moment and ask, what are they teaching? What is their doctrine? That's how we test teachers according to what they teach. And if they don't teach according to the doctrine that we find in the Bible, then they're false teachers, no matter how many miracles they produce. To prove my point, I would draw your attention to something that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 16. It's found in verses 17 and 18, where Paul declares, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the opinions which you... Oh, wait, that's not what it says. Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Christian, listen. If a teacher is presenting doctrines that are in conflict with the epistles of Paul or the epistles of Peter or the epistles of James and John. Listen, if their teachings are in conflict with the doctrines that we find in the Bible, then they are nothing more than false teachers that Jesus actually warned us about. And listen, this is true. Even if they have the power to produce supernatural signs and miraculous wonders. That being the case, we would all do well to remember that you know, as we get closer and closer to the end of the church age, Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, and they will dupe those who are easily deceived with simple demonic parlor tricks. And you see it happening in these so-called revivals where Christians flock out to see the incredible works that are being done. And when you cut through all the smoke and mirror and listen to the teachings that are being presented, it doesn't line up with the Bible. Be careful with these because... The last days will be a time of increasing doctrinal deception, and if possible, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ could be deceived. And while it's true that the last days will be a time of increasing doctrinal deception, it's also true that the last days will be a time of increasing global commotion. Now, with this as the focus, I want to continue to consider the prophecy that we find here in Luke chapter 21. If you would, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 9. Here the Lord Jesus goes on to declare, when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Now, here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus presenting his disciples with a laundry list of end-time indicators, which include widespread war and national commotions. Just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the Greek word, which is here rendered war, well, war refers to the disputes and the fights and the battles that take place as nations rise against nations and as kingdoms rise up against other kingdoms. And so, according to the Lord Jesus, widespread war is an indicator that we're living in the last days. And you're like, well, big deal. I mean, there, there's always been war, right? Well, as we consider this word of prophecy, you know, the, and, and as we consider how there's typically, you know, always been some level of war here in the world, well, it only stands to reason that because this is just the beginning of sorrows and these things will continue to increase like labor pains uh, of a pregnant woman. Listen, it only stands to reason then that the world is going to be filled with this sort of commotion prior to the second coming. We should continue to see nation rising up against nation and kingdom against kingdom in a way that increases. And with that, I want you to notice with me again here in Luke 21, verse 9, the Lord Jesus declares, when you hear of wars and commotions, that word commotions, well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to the state of disorder, which is caused by chaos and confusion. Anybody see an increase of chaos and confusion happening in the world today? This word commotions also refers to the economic and political instabilities that result in national disturbances and disorders and dissensions. Thayer's also connects this word with uh, the concept of tumults or commotions caused by war. So according to the Lord Jesus, the last days is going to be a time of incredible commotion as wars that break out all over the place create chaos in every society. 
To further grasp my point, I'd like you to notice with me again here in Luke 21, verse 10. Here, Jesus informs us that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, uh, the word nation here is translated from the Greek word, which, uh, which could refer to a company of troops. It could also re- refer to a, a swarm of soldiers. And so uh, when Jesus tells us that nation will rise up against nation, this seems to suggest that regional battles will occur as well as full-blown world wars. Uh, does anybody think that we might be on the verge of World War III? Uh, there are some people who seem to suggest that that is happening uh, even currently. And, and as we now find ourselves on the brink of what might be World War III, it's no wonder that so many Christians believe that we are now living in the last days. It's also interesting to note that Jesus was using the Greek word ethnos when he informed us that nation will rise against nation. In the Greek, it's ethnos will rise against ethnos. Now, just to be clear, the word ethnos, this is the Greek root for our English words ethnic or ethnicity. And so when Jesus informs his disciples that ethnos will rise against ethnos, he could have been referring to the wars which will be sparked with uh, ethnic-based conflicts that cause global commotion. For example, uh, we know right now that Russia is currently at war with the people in Ukraine. And so we see ethnos rising up against ethnos. We also see uh, uh, Iran funding proxy wars against the people of Israel. And so the ethnos in Iran are at war with the ethnos there in Israel. We also know that China is gearing up to uh, invade and conquer Taiwan. And so again, we find ethnos rising up against ethnos. We can even boil this down to just a person's individual ethnicity and and the sort of uh, racial wars that they're trying to stir up in even countries like our own. Yeah, ethnos will rise up against ethnos in the last days, and this will continue to increase as the world becomes an unstable place. The Lord Jesus then also elaborates on this there in verse 10, uh, again, there he, uh, we learn that nation or ethnos will rise against ethnos and kingdom against kingdom. That, that word kingdom is translated from a Greek word, which refers to the territory that, uh, that uh, is subject uh, to the rule of a specific king. So you have a king who rules over a specific kingdom with specific boundaries and borders. And as we consider the way that ki- the kings of the earth attempt to conquer the countries connected to their own borders, well, we shouldn't be surprised as we continue to watch uh, nation rising against nation and kingdom rising up against kingdom as they attempt to push their borders further, further away. Just as Jesus promised, you should know that the 20th and the 21st centuries have been filled with increasing commotion as the kingdoms of the world continue to clamor for more control. Not only that, but the Lord also promised increasing levels of global commotion caused by natural disasters. This, of course, includes great earthquakes in various places, famines, as well as pestilences. That word earthquakes, well, it's translated from the Greek word seismos, which is the root for our English word seismic. So when we talk about seismic activities, that that stems back to this Greek word seismos. The original Greek word seismos speaks of a commotion caused by shaking. Uh, We should also notice that Jesus wasn't just referring to any old seismos, uh, but he's actually referring to great earthquakes. That word great uh, comes from the Greek word megas, and so he's talking about mega earthquakes. And just as Jesus predicted, listen, uh, according to one calculation, uh, there's been a 2,000% increase in major earthquakes since 1900. Since 1900, there's been a 2,000% increase in the earth's major earthquakes. We should also notice that Jesus was not only promising global commotion caused by these mega earthquakes, but he also describes the last days as a time of famine, which is caused by a reduction in food production. Just to be uh, clear about this, you know, Jesus here uh, has promised something that we now see coming to pass right before our very eyes. You might not know this, but we're living in a time of widespread drought, which is actually beginning to affect our food supply. I mean, I'm not, I'm not even talking about, you know, all of the uh, different food distribution uh, facilities that are now blowing up and catching on fire. I'm not even talking about the problem with, uh, you know, uh, getting enough fertilizer for your crops. You know, I'm talking about like full-blown drought happening uh, in many places throughout the world, including uh, the western half of the United States. 
It was just last Friday when politicians and experts met in Madrid, Spain, probably for the paella, but, uh, but, but also uh, in order to discuss the best ways to tackle uh, the current drought conditions, which is going to affect the food supply you know, as weather conditions increase the spread of deserts uh, across our globe. And listen, you can't drive enough Teslas to, to fix this. You know, this drought, uh, I, I believe it is something that is supernatural. And listen, if earthquakes and, and a diminishing food supply caused by drought isn't bad enough, the Lord Jesus also promises increasing amounts of pestilence. And just to be clear, the word pestilence found there in the middle of verse 11, well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to any plague that results in the global commotion caused by widespread disease. Well, we see an increasing level of pestilence and plague happening here in the world. Well, you know, we're, we're just now on, on the hopeful backside of COVID-19, but now we're starting to see what's been called sudden death syndrome as people are just dropping dead and, and as the, the prime, uh, prime-aged people, you know, are, are just dropping dead. And, and the insurance companies are struggling to keep, keep up with the life insurance payouts now. And, and not only that, but hey, monkeypox, which we have to rename because that's racist, according to some. Uh, but, you know, yeah, monkeypox, which some think is possibly vaccine-induced, and it's just nothing more than shingles, right? And well, how, what do I know about it? All I know is I need to stay away from the monkeys at the zoo, uh, if I understand it correctly. But, uh, but here we go with a monkeypox outbreak. Without debate, we're currently watching the prophecy of Jesus being fulfilled as we watch increasing levels of plague happen. And, and don't take my word for it. Listen to the expert, you know, Bill Gates. Yeah, Bill Gates recently confirmed the prophecy of Christ Jesus by declaring this, and I quote him here, we'll have another pandemic. I think he said it with a smile on his face, but I'm not sure. But he said, we'll have another pandemic. It will be a different pathogen next time. You know, and, and, and in the words of, you know, Montgomery Burns, excellent. Yeah. Bill Gates is promising another pandemic as he gears up to sell more vaccines. Thankfully, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But uh, we should also notice what Jesus said there in verse 11. Here he assures his disciples that there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Now, I don't have time to get into all of the uh, new information that the Pentagon is now releasing about UFOs, but, but I, you know, as we consider the, the fearful sights that will strike terror into the hearts of the inhabitants here on the earth, I can't help but to wonder what kind of fearful sights are we talking about? The Lord Jesus also refers to the commotions which will be caused by the great signs, not in heaven, but from heaven. Yeah, these fearful sights and, and these, you know, these great signs or mega signs are going to come from heaven. In other words, there's going to be unusual occurrences which will transcend the common course of nature in a very unmistakable way. And while I can't say for sure what sort of fearful sights and great signs will come from heaven, I can't help but to wonder if the Lord went on to describe this commotion later on in the same message. With this as the focus, I want to turn your attention back to Luke chapter 21, but I want to dip into our text, which we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 25. Here Jesus declares, there will be signs in the sun in the moon and in the stars and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity the sea and the waves roaring men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus describing the signs that will be seen there in the sky just before the time of his return. And as we consider the way that the hearts of the earth's inhabitants will fail as they see these heavenly signs coming to the earth, well, there should be no doubt in our minds that these signs will cause global commotion. And as we read this, if this prophecy fills your heart with fear, then you might like to know that 
Uh, much of this is going to take place after the rapture of the church. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. Not only that, but I also want to remind you about the encouragement that Jesus presented back in verse 9. It was back in verse 9 when he said this. He says, when you hear of wars and commotions, have you heard of wars and commotions lately? I know I have. I'm sure you have as well. So this applies to us. When you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. In other words, when we begin to see this increasing level of global commotion occurring throughout the entire world, the born-again believer, wherever they are, can rest assured that these things are all part of God's plan. Therefore, there's no reason to be afraid. I like the way that the Apostle Matthew rendered the words of Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 24. It's, it's there where Jesus is comforting the hearts of his disciples by declaring, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. See that you are not troubled. If you're watching the news and you're seeing the, the, the rumors of wars and, and you're seeing the news about you know, droughts and, and food supply issues, and as you see all of this, if your heart is filled with fear, if these things bring terror to your mind, Jesus says, don't do that. You don't have to be anxious about these things. Why? Because he's in control of all of these things. These things must come to pass before the end. And so there's no reason for us to fear it. But rather we can rest in the refuge of our Redeemer. This reminds me of a praise song that King David presented in the 46th Psalm. It's there where he declares, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried in the, into the midst of the sea, though, the, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah. Even if everything in this world falls apart right before our very eyes, we don't have to be troubled because the creator of the universe is our refuge and he is our strength. Those who are truly trusting in the Lord can rest in the refuge of our Redeemer because Jesus has pr promised to provide us with his perfect protection. I realize how easy it is for our minds to be troubled and terrified as we consider the global commotions that are already occurring, and, and yet we can rejoice as we remember that the Lord has prophetically revealed these things in advance. He's revealed these things before they've happened. And one reason why is to let us know that he's in control. And, and while I realize that there are some Christians who have it in their mind that they have to somehow stop the rise of the Antichrist, that they have to stop the globalists from you know, creating a, a, a global government and they have to stop the... No, 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 hold on a second. We've been called to the Great Commission. We have not been called to stop the Antichrist. We have not been called to make sure that Trump is our president until Jesus returns. We have not been called to try to fix all of these issues. And we certainly haven't been called to fear them. We've been called to trust in Jesus and accomplish the Great Commission so that some might be saved. And yeah, even in the midst of all the global commotion that will occur as we get closer to the rapture of the church. And this is really good news to know that our King of Kings is still in control, especially as we consider the third and final point. You see, the last days will not only be a time of increasing doctrinal deception and increasing global commotion, but the last days will also be a time of increasing spiritual persecution. And with this as the focus, let's continue to consider the prophecy that we find here in Luke chapter 21. If you would, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 12. Here the Lord Jesus declares, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering 
bring you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting us with this prophetic promise about the persecution that would begin to unfold even before the destruction of the temple. Notice again, there in the beginning of verse 12, Jesus again declares, before all these things, all the things that, that he's mentioned so far, before all these things begin, before the destruction of the temple, before the wars and the rumors of wars, before the natural disasters, before the supernatural signs from heaven, before all of these things, the unbelievers would begin to lay their hands on the disciples of Christ in order to persecute them and put them to death. And yet the Lord assures them that this would turn out to be an occasion for presenting their testimony. Well, listen, just as Jesus promised, it didn't take long for all the religious rulers there in Israel to start persecuting the people of God. For example, it's in Acts chapter 4. There we learn that Peter and John were both arrested for preaching the gospel there at the temple. In Acts chapter 5, we find the apostles being arrested for the very same reason. In Acts chapter 7, we find Stephen being martyred for his commitment to Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, we find a Pharisee named Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's also interesting to know that this, this Pharisee named Saul, <clears throat> he went on to become Paul, the Christian missionary, after his conversion. And while it's true that he was once a man who persecuted Christians even to the point of death, it's also true that Paul became an incredible believer who was persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul describes the persecutions that he endured. And this, according to him, included stripes above measure, frequent imprisonments, five times he was scourged, three times he was beaten with rods, and once he was stoned, but not in the cool California way. They took him outside of the city gates and they threw stones at him until he was unconscious and possibly even dead for a moment before being revived by the Lord. And Paul endured these persecutions and he treated each one as an opportunity to present his testimony. These were all an occasion for him to present his faith in Jesus Christ. But as we look beyond the Bible to extra-biblical sources, we also discover that the Christian church continued to suffer persecution as the emperors of Rome began to, uh, to silence the testimony of those who were thought to be just another uh, weird sect of Judaism. And so they were persecuting the Jews and the Christians side by side. For example, in the middle of the first century, Emperor Claudius became the first emperor to persecute Christians alongside of the Jews. And then after him, Emperor Nero persecuted the Christian church after blaming them for starting the great fire there in Rome. And just to sum up the early church with simplicity, from AD 30 until AD 311, at least a dozen Roman emperors were committed to the persecution of Christians. And so we see that the Lord's prophetic promise of persecution came to pass without fail. And while it's true that Jesus presented this prophetic promise to the disciples uh, who were there in the first century, well, listen, it's also true that he presented this promise of persecution to every Christian who would exist throughout the entire church age. From the day of Pentecost until the rapture, persecution has been promised to the church. As a matter of fact, it's in John chapter 15 where the Lord Jesus refers to the way that the world is going to hate those who trust in him. In the same section of scripture, Jesus informs us that a servant is not greater than his master. And then he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Did they persecute Jesus? Yes. Are you his servant? If so, then they will persecute you as well. Jesus uh, made a similar promise in John chapter 16, where he declares, if the, uh, in the world uh, you will have tribulation, 
but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Yeah, Jesus has overcome the world. And yet, as we wait for the rapture, we're still going to experience persecution. Paul confirms that these prophetic promises about persecution will be fulfilled throughout the entirety of the church age. As a matter of fact, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 3 where he declares, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And then he says this, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. According to Paul, Christians throughout the entire church age will continue to suffer persecution as we set out to live our lives for the Lord. As a matter of fact, notice again in verse 12, here Paul assures us that all who desire, he doesn't say some, he doesn't say most, he says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, the Greek word which here is rendered all, it can also be rendered all. Yeah, it means all, it means everyone. Every born-again believer who is truly living their life for the Lord will suffer some level of persecution. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered this verse. They put it like this. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Everyone, he says. And as we consider this prophetic promise, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I... Suffering persecution? Am I suffering persecution? And if the answer is no, then the follow-up question is this. Am I truly living a godly life in Christ Jesus? Because according to Paul, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if you're not suffering persecution, then are you truly living a godly life in Christ Jesus? If not, are you attempting to avoid the pain of persecution by hiding your faith from those you know will disapprove? You know, you find yourself around those people who you know, they're not about your faith at all, and they love to mock Christians and scoff Jesus. And so rather than being a bold believer, you clam up and you silence yourself and you self-edit to avoid the persecution. If that's true of you, I encourage you to, be, to, to, to just come to grips with the fact that the persecution of Christians has been promised and will only continue to grow worse and worse the closer we get to the rapture of the church. So what are you going to do? Just continue to hide until the end of your life? To further grasp the point that I want to make here, I want to take another look at a point that Paul was making here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look, notice with me again in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, where Paul says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And then he says this, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. According to Paul, the, the evil men who will be calling for the persecution of Christians, they're going to continue to grow worse and worse. The imposters who come along and pretend to be Christians while introducing liberal doctrines of demons, they're going to continue to grow worse and worse as they lead the church into apostasy. And those who will not follow them into apostasy, they will be canceled and they will be persecuted for taking a stand for biblical truth. From today until the rapture of the church, the persecution of Christians will continue to increase as attacks against the church become normalized. Evidence of this can be seen in a 2018 study which has revealed that Christians reportedly experienced harassment in 145 countries throughout the world. As a result of this study, it was determined back in 2018 that Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the planet. And as we, as we continue to see new laws being formed against hate speech, which by that what they mean is biblical speech, 
145 countries will soon become 146, I guarantee it. And as we consider this increase of spiritual persecution against the church, we must not forget what Jesus said here in Luke chapter 21. I want to draw your attention back to verse 13. There Jesus declares, as he speaks about the persecution of Christians, he says, this will turn out for you as an occasion for what? For your testimony. To testify about who Jesus is and what he's done. And in verse 14, he tells us, therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Christian, listen, rather than attempting to avoid the spiritual persecution that's been prophetically promised, settle it in your hearts that this is going to happen and we ought to look at every single attack as just another opportunity to share our testimony about Jesus Christ and the salvation provided by our Savior. Now, I get it. I I get, you know, we would all rather avoid the arguments that arise as we share our faith with antagonistic unbelievers. And yet we can rejoice in knowing that those who trust in Jesus Christ are going to receive the heavenly help that we need from the Holy Spirit who was sent to empower us so that we can receive the wisdom that we need to become a witness for the Lord. And those who who are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit can rejoice in knowing that he is going to give us a mouth and wisdom which all of our adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. We should also notice what Jesus said beginning there at verse 16. There he declares, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. Now, now, now this is where I take issue with the Bible. You know, when, when it says not a hair of your head shall be lost, I, I, I look in the mirror every day and I'm just like, Clearly, there's at least one contradiction in the Bible. Amen. And I prayed about this one day, and the Lord just said, you didn't, you're not losing any hairs. I'm just moving them around. So, uh... <laughs> But in verse 19, he goes on to say, by your patience, possess your souls. By your patience, possess your souls. From this, we can see that those who are truly living their life for the Lord, yeah, they're going to be hated by those who hate our Savior. They hated our Master first. And you better believe they're going to hate us too. So why try to fit in? Why try to make ourselves more presentable or more acceptable in the eyes of those who hate our Savior? And it's sad that many Christians are attempting to avoid spiritual persecution by trying to fit in with this fallen world. And as a result, many Christians are embracing liberal arguments that are just forced on the scripture from extra biblical arguments and eisegesis that don't actually line up with what the Bible says, but it, it goes along with current culture. And so in order to blend in with the culture, we embrace heresy We embrace unbiblical beliefs about sexual immorality. We embrace unbiblical beliefs uh, about, you know, lifestyles that the Lord is not pleased with. Why? Well, in order to avoid getting canceled by those who want to persecute those who take a stand for the truth of God's word. And so rather than living a godly life in Christ Jesus, these carnal Christians just try to blend in with unbelievers by just going along to get along. And if this sounds like something that you struggle with, I encourage you to consider what Christ Jesus meant when he declares here, by your patience, possess your souls. Now, the word patience there is translated from a Greek word, which refers to the characteristic of the Christian who refuses to deviate from their deliberate purpose, not even by the threat of persecution. We're not willing to deviate from the truth of God's word, even in the case where they threaten to cancel us. The same word patience also refers to the steadfast commitment that leads believers to become loyal to Jesus. Even during those times when we face the greatest trials and sufferings at the hands of those 
who want to persecute those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we consider the meaning of this word patience, you know, Jesus here, he's clearly encouraging every Christian to endure the pain of persecution as we patiently submit our souls to the will of our Savior. By your patience, possess your soul. By, by the patient endurance of persecution, get a hold of your fears. Get, get a hold of those things that would lead you to just give in to the persecutor. Get a hold of that. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And yeah, even if what that means is that we're going to be persecuted by those who hate our Savior. You see, it's not going to be long before this whole, this whole world is done with. Our life is over. It's, it's a vapor of smoke. It's over before you know it. I don't know about you, but I'd like to step in front of my Savior one day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But we won't hear those words if what we did was subjected and submitted ourselves to the unbelievers who want to press us into a worldly mold. By patience, let's possess our souls. As we begin to wrap up this message, it's important for us to realize that we're without a doubt living in the last days. The proof of my point is found in the fact that we're currently living in a time that checks all the boxes, which includes increasing levels of doctrinal deceptions, increasing levels of global commotions, and increasing levels of spiritual persecutions. And with all that being the case, you know, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that we live in a time when the enemy is going to do everything in his power to deceive the elect of the Lord in order to just take us out of his way. What do I mean by that? Well, listen, if you're a born-again believer, then the devil's already lost a battle for your soul. The next best thing that he can do is just render you irrelevant. To make you live in fear, living in silence, uh, afraid to go against the, 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 the broad road that's leading people to destruction. If he can simply just disqualify disciples with, you know, sexual sin or hobbies that take up too much of our time or whatever the case if the enemy can just get us distracted enough that we're no longer accomplishing the great commission, then he can take his time to go and you know, take all the souls that he wants from those who are rejecting Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that I encourage every Christian to realize that we are living in the last days. The time is short. People are dying and going to hell. Let's get back to the business of the great commission so that we can lead people to Christ. With that, I encourage every Christian to avoid the apostasy that's currently happening within the church as liberal teachers come in and try to change doctrines that the church has embraced for centuries. Let's avoid this apostasy currently happening. And the best way to do this is by keeping our focus fixed firmly on Christ Jesus because Jesus alone will empower us and help us to endure every persecution until our last day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,